on April 2nd, 1982, the military junta that was leading Argentina launched an invasion on the Islas Malvinas, or what is known as the Falkland Islands. They did so by landing these amphibious vehicles on the island and capturing the local city, the primary city, and its governor. They forced him to surrender, although they were surprised that there was any resistance at all from the English people on the island. There were only 68 Marines and an additional 23 volunteers to stand resistance. They expected it to go very easily. And yet, after just a matter of moments, they did indeed finally surrender. That war would end on June 14th, lasting just two months, one week, and five days. But not before there were a number of battles and not before there were a number of lives that were lost. A turning point came in late May when the Argentines launched what they had were two Exocet missiles. And they did so at British ships. Those ships, using countermeasures and using evasive maneuvers, were able to avoid those missiles. But it came at a cost, because in avoiding them, those missiles continued on. And they found a container ship behind them and locked on. It hit that container ship and the Atlantic conveyor and sunk it on May 25th, 1982. What the Argentines could not have known was that that container ship, behind the stacks of containers all around it, what it concealed were 14 Harrier jets and 13 different helicopters of various kinds. It was a decoy converted to a military ship to carry the English weapons, which were key to the very next phase of England's strategy. Without the cover of those airplanes and without those helicopters to carry the troops 65 miles inland to the town of Stanley, English troops were forced to walk with all of their gear the entire way, really doing just whatever they could do. And so with 400 men, Colonel Herbert Jones did just that. They were outnumbered by two to three Argentines for every British soldier. And they arrived what was known as Goose Green. And with resistance holding them off, England's soldiers were really, they were exposed. They had to run across the plains, going from trench to trench for the sake of battle, trying to overtake the Argentines that were in those trenches and then offer cover for themselves. But of course, as they advanced, they exposed themselves and they succumbed to the bullets from the other side. They would lose a number of soldiers, but eventually they did make it across. And after a time, as they, they finally made it there, then they encountered the main resistance. That was only a piece of it. They now came to the main group, but because they were too decimated themselves to face action, Colonel Jones did something that a commanding officer normally doesn't do. He went first. It was a move that would cost him both his life, but save the war for England. He went first, with some men following, into that resistance, into the very center. His second in command, Chris Keeble, recounts hearing over the radios the phrase, Sunray is down. Sunray was his code name. 
meaning that the first in command had gone down. Commander Keeble, thinking that that just meant that he was injured and no longer able to function, didn't realize that he was actually dead. And he admits that he did not know what to do at that moment. And so he says this, at first, I prayed. I prayed, Father, I abandon myself to you. Do as you please. I don't know if he truly professes to be a believer or not, but that's his very own testimony. And then at that moment, after that prayer, he made a decision. The maneuver by Colonel Jones had created enough chaos that there was now a way out. And so what Commander Keeble and his men did was launch these anti-tank missiles to the other side. And that created further chaos. Even though it wasn't much, it was enough to scare the Argentine military. And then Keeble confronted the Argentine soldiers. And he demanded surrender. Facing two options, fight or surrender, the Argentines chose to surrender. It is agreed upon by most military historians and even those of the English side that were there at the day that if those soldiers had not surrendered at that moment, Argentina would have won the Falkland Islands War. But again, they did not know just how much they had truly decimated the British soldiers. They didn't know that they had unintentionally hit a container ship that was part of their strategic plan, and they really had no idea just how few troops that really were. But their surrender paved the way for England then to continue on and move forward and reach Stanley and overtake the island. I share that story because unfortunately I think we do the same in the Christian life. When things get hard, we surrender. Sometimes the greatest barrier to spiritual growth is ourselves. We get in the way of the Lord's work by not placing the Lord's work at the center of that work. A bold faith sometimes requires bold steps. And that's something we see in our text this morning. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. As I did last week, I'm going to... Read early on in 1 Timothy, beginning at verse 3, before skipping down. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from the God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Jumping down to verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, Some have made a shipwreck of their faith. 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's interesting how often stories of war serve as an example for the Christian life. But there is a reason for that. Scripture itself uses the very same language and imagery. And it does so here in our text in 1 Timothy. Verses 18 through 20 showcase the fight that is undertaken for the sake of the Christian faith. And just last week, we looked at verses 18 through the first part of verse 19, seeing what it means to fight the good fight and contend well for the faith. Today, we now move forward, looking at that second half of verse 19 through verse 20. And I I want us to look at how we can contend poorly for the faith. There are two options. We have the British response to act boldly because faith demands bold steps. Or we have the Argentine response, which is to avoid the hard steps, to surrender when things get hard. Here, Paul calls out specific individuals, and he details how false teaching, and specifically their false teaching, was leading people astray, and then talks about their expulsion for that false teaching. I want us to look upon this text this morning and see not only an example of how to contend poorly for the faith, but I hope that it will encourage us to contend well for the faith. And so I want you to note first the characters. The characters specifically named here are two individuals, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Although apparently they're not alone, apparently what it seems is that there's this whole group of people who have really departed from the faith. But by giving names to at least two of the people involved in the false teaching in Ephesus, it makes the situation both more real and more relevant. (coughs) If Paul would have just written that there's false teaching taking place and some have shipwrecked their faith and were expelled from the church, it would be very easy for us to overlook this incident. But by naming the individuals, we begin to recognize that this is a very serious situation. There are real people involved, and there are real lives impacted. As an example, if I tell you that I have a pastor friend in a church I know that experienced the loss of his wife recently, you may think that's sad. But if I tell you the name of that church, and that his name was Pastor Mike, and that he lost his wife Hope to cancer, it grows more serious because you begin to associate specific individuals with that tragedy you may start to have a tinge of sadness. It may cause you to think of their three children and wonder what to do. And it may even cause you to begin to pray for them. By adding names here, Paul is linking some details, and he's pointing to the weightiness of the situation. In naming specifically Hymenaeus and Alexander, it suggests that these two people, these two individuals, 
they must have been the main instigators of the false teaching. And so it is these two that bear the primary burden for leading others astray. Clearly, they'd been leaders in the church because by naming them, they seem to be prominent enough to be already known. Who these men are is not exactly fully known to us today, but there is some limited information. Because the name is common, it's really hard to pinpoint exactly who Alexander is. But the New Testament mentions two men by the name of Alexander who are also associated with the church in Ephesus, or at least the city of Ephesus. The first is a Jew mentioned in Acts 19.34. And he's one of the individuals, if you remember Acts 19, it is when Paul is preaching against the idolatry, specifically against the, the temple of Artemis, and knowing that his teaching could lead to a a bankruptcy of their business, the idol makers began to rise up. And Alexander is mentioned as one of those people. In that way, Alexander has already declared himself opposed to the teachings of Christ. So it's probably not the same Alexander in our text. Unless something extraordinary happened where he denied Christ, opposed Paul, came to Christ, and now he's denying Christ again. But I doubt that. Instead, it seems more likely that the Alexander mentioned here is the same one found in the second epistle to Timothy, where Paul writes, Alexander the coppersmith, he did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Even that is disputable to some degree, though. But I think it's a likely possibility. More easily identifiable is Hymenaeus because he is also mentioned in 2 Timothy. And we're even told of how he diverted from true teaching. 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18 states, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. At hand is the reality that Hymenaeus was preaching a wrong eschatology, meaning that he's preaching something that was wrong about the end times. In this case, we may think that this is a little thing. But central to our beliefs as Christians is resurrection. Most importantly, we see the resurrection of Christ, because without that key tenet, salvation is impossible. At that point of when Christ offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross for sins, his death paid the penalty for the sins. But his resurrection proved that that death was sufficient, and that his sacrifice had the capacity to overcome or cover or atone for all sins. But this resurrection of Christ has already happened. So that can't be what's being referred to here that Hymenaeus is teaching. There's also the future resurrection of believers. But that likely couldn't be the topic either, because if they're living there on earth, their resurrection hasn't happened yet. Instead, the pagan beliefs of the day believed that the, the physical body was evil, and it could not mix with anything else that was good. The soul, then, 
when it was saved, according to their theology, could not mix with that body because it was evil. To accommodate this pagan view, it seems that there were teachings that the resurrection of the soul at least took place. The consequences of such teaching not only contradict scripture, but then it would remove a person's responsibility for sin, at least in the physical body. Hymenaeus and Alexander's departure from their faith, it can occur to any of us. And so we do well to learn lessons here. First, I think it calls our attention to a discernment of doctrine or a discernment of teaching. Ideas have consequences. And we must be ready to review and respond to ideas in light of Scripture, whether they're our own ideas or they are somebody else's ideas. The simplest way to do this is to realize that every idea has a basis for epistemology, for anthropology, and for soteriology. That is, they have a source of knowledge. They get their knowledge from somewhere. That's the epistemology. They have a belief about man. That's the anthropology. And they have a way for salvation. That's soteriology. And if you can analyze any view with a biblical basis of those three things, you can determine the veracity of any idea. When I take a stand against something, I do so trying to utilize these three aspects to pinpoint what the outcome will be. I'm trying to evaluate the future consequences of an idea. The consequences here of this false teaching that we just read about in 2 Timothy was that they found their epistemology, they found their knowledge not in, the, in God and not in his revealed word. They found it in man, in those pagan beliefs. That's where their knowledge came from. And that led them then to a faulty anthropology, a faulty view of man. Because now they said that the soul and the body can't coexist. And what that says then is that the view of man is that if any person could just separate their physical body and their soul, then they could be saved. That's your soteriology, that's your salvation which essentially says man could save themselves. So we went from speaking about a resurrection to realizing what they were teaching was a salvation by man's works. The Ephesian church, like many churches today, failed to discern the consequences of these ideas from the false teaching. They failed to recognize that it undermined salvation that's kind of troubling because they had already been warned about this. At least warned to be on guard with the letter that Paul had written to the Ephesians previously. It was written, Ephesians chapter 5. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And yet within a few years, they've already forgotten this warning. There's a great need for discernment today. 
discernment that comes from a sincere faith, a, a good doctrine, as we talked about last week, and a good conscience. But a good doctrine and a good conscience are, can be at least flawed or seared, which means that there must be a level of accountability from the word of God and from the wise counsel of godly individuals. We are not and we cannot be self-contained units of knowledge because without iron sharpening iron, we risk becoming like those false teachers. Which leads us to the second lesson, that we need a discernment of teachers, a discernment of people. A frightening aspect of this encounter is that the danger came from within the church. There is no person accepted from the possibility of false teaching, whether teaching it themselves or being influenced by it themselves. The word of God warns that the way is wide, the gate is narrow, that not everyone who professes faith is actually saved. They give the appearance of godliness but deny his power, it says. This reiterates that need for accountability, and it explains why the Bible gives us a process for discipline that is outlined here or seems to occur here in 1 Timothy. Unlike the Lord, we can't look upon the hearts of individuals. We can only look at outward behavior. And so when someone strays, we confront, and a genuine believer is going to repent and change, while an unbeliever is going to resist and continue. I'm not talking about a mistake, which we're all prone to do. I'm talking here about just the ongoing teaching of falsehood. We're always surprised when someone defects from the Lord. They were probably surprised in Ephesus that these two had defected from the Lord. But in every instance, when you hear of somebody defecting, you, you always hear the same thing. There were warning signs, but then nobody confronted those warning signs. If the Ephesian church had been discerning, perhaps this situation could have been avoided but they poorly contended for the faith, lacking both a discernment of teaching and a discernment of teachers. Such a reality, the presence of false teaching in the church at Ephesus, it warns us that we need to be discerning of both teaching and teachers. I want you to note second, the cause. The cause or the reason that the church of Ephesus finds itself in these circumstances, as noted in our text. It just reads, By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Hymenaeus and Alexander and others, they've rejected that good doctrine and that good conscience that we've seen in verse 5 and verse 19. They have not just rejected them, but they've completely repudiated this essential element there's a picture of this, actually, in Scripture. We read it this morning in Acts chapter 7. It is in Acts 7 when Steve, Stephen is about to be stoned for his belief. And he begins to recount the story of salvation. He begins at Abraham and just walks all the way through Israel's history. But the central aspect of that story, and you heard this morning, is Moses. And three times... In verses 27, verses 35, and verse 39, 
the same phrase that we have in our text, the exact same word that is used in our text to speak of rejecting Moses is used here for those who reject a good doctrine and a good conscience. That word's only used six times in Scripture, and three times it speaks to how the Israels repudiated or rejected Moses. And it culminates with, our fathers refused to obey him, it says in verse 39, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. That picture of people rejecting Moses and turning to Egypt is the same picture we have of the false teachers here. They've rejected the sound doctrine and the sound sound consciences and turned towards the world or turned towards themselves, really. They didn't merely just walk away. They refused to obey and willfully pushed aside the elements of both. How did they reject those? There really can only be one answer. Pride. I think there are a lot of causes, many that we've talked about way back on April 30th when we talked about verse 5. But the root cause of every single one is pride. Because pride causes a person to think more highly of themselves than they really are. And so first they begin to think that they are impenetrable by falsehood. They make so much of their own knowledge that they don't think that falsehood will ever come and impact them. Pride can also cause them to think that their doctrine is right and true. They have no need to learn from anyone else, and so even when confronted, they will reject the wise counsel. At the same time, pride causes them to ignore that their own sin may sear their consciences, as we've seen here. These are crucial aspects, so important that we've come back to this, this good doctrine, good conscience, three times now, just in the first chapter of Timothy, 1 Timothy. Those who refuse to control their pride will find themselves in a very dangerous situation because they will allow both their doctrine and their conscience to be vulnerable to attacks from the evil one. Paul warns of this later in the same letter in chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, though the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. For obvious reasons, I think we would all agree that a bad doctrine can lead people astray. But I don't know that we always realize that a bad conscience can lead people to heresy as well. One who is not convicted by sin will change their doctrine to justify that sin. And we see this in various ways. In fact, I think this is why people are so devoted to tradition. They blindly interpret scripture according to their tradition and value not what scripture says, but their opinion about scripture so that they can continue doing what they've always done. In another example of of how a bad conscience can lead a person astray, I counseled a woman one time who was separated from her husband, unbiblically, but she was separated. But they weren't yet divorced. And yet she started not only dating another man, but started living with him. When confronted, her response to me was, but God wants me to be happy. Don't you want me to be happy? Basically, she's saying, my adultery is justified. Because in her theology, 
She had reasoned that God would approve of her happiness more than he disapproved of her sin. Ideas have consequences. And so we need both good doctrine and good conscience. Our doctrine informs our conscience and our conscience informs our doctrine. And I hope it goes without saying that both are informed by the word of God. If they don't, if they're not, then they're immensely flawed. Truth has ethical demands. Jesus said in John 17, 17, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. As one person has said, doing is the key to discovery, obedience is the key to assurance. Conveying the idea that the more we do God's will, the more a person becomes convinced that God's will and his ways are good and perfect and true. Romans 12, 2. John Owen warns, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The false teacher's sin of pride, it was killing them. Killing them by destroying their doctrine and desensitizing their conscience. Their sin was killing them. There's often a link between theological error and moral failure. And Hymenaeus and Alexander are examples of that or could be. And so for this reason, Paul and Timothy, they have no choice but to take decisive action in Ephesus, as we'll see in just a moment. We can't treat theological error and physical sin casually. Its consequences are serious, and so our guard against it must be serious as well. The Lord has not called believers to a life of passivity, but one of activity. We cannot expect to sit back and just expect that sin's going to flee us. The Lord has called upon us to labor with his Holy Spirit to be killing sin or it will be killing us. That we must put up hedges of protection, as it says, lest we become like Hymenaeus and Alexander. They contended poorly for their faith by rejecting what God had given them in a good conscience and good doctrine. Instead, unlike them, we have to be killing sin. And we do so first by regular accountability with God, coming before him by allowing his word to teach us and allowing his spirit to convict us and allowing him to forgive us, which means coming forward in repentance and fully confessing those sins to him. We also do this by regular accountability with godly believers, godly individuals. We see this in scripture, Galatians 6, just as an example. We see this in which believers within the church regularly confront and convict with the goal of repentance. It's interesting that accountability with God and accountability with godly individuals is meant to have the same goal, the same ambition, repentance and restoration. And that leads us to this last point. I want you to note finally the consequences. The consequences. We see here that Hymenaeus and Alexander, they're, they're asked to leave the church. Paul writes, they have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. A bold faith requires bold steps. 
Few people have the courage to take this step. They're uncomfortable, they're fearful, they're anxious. But I would say each of those responses is a selfish response because it says me being comfortable is more important than someone else's battle with sin. And worse, my comfort is more important or worth allowing them to possibly lead others into sin as well. But from this verse, we see the more loving act is to attempt to lead someone away from their errors and away from their sins and instead lead them towards God. What happens here in 1 Timothy follows what is seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And at that point, there's been sexual immorality that has defiled the church. Specifically, there's one individual where Paul instructs the church and says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The problem is how we treat church discipline is that we view it as punitive. But discipline is meant to be remedial. It's, it's not meant to be a punishment. It's meant to lead people. This is a concept of discipline. It's an odd picture we find here in this text, the idea of turning someone over to Satan. John kind of explains a little bit for us in his first epistle. He says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I bring that up because what that seems to show is that there's a separation in Scripture in which the world is considered Satan's realm. And the church is considered God's realm. Obviously, the Lord is still ruler of all. But the distinction is made in Scripture for us. And so one person says, if a person calling himself a Christian then rejects this truth and embraces a lifestyle con contradicting the truth, he's already put himself under Satan's sphere of influence. All Paul is doing in 1 Timothy then is just affirming the decision to enter Satan's realm. William Folk warns that excommunication is something that should be feared because it is a step that shows that they do not have a good conscience with faith, may fall from faith, and make a shipwreck of it. He goes on, but it is not a lively faith. It's not a true faith whereby someone is justified, but a dead faith, consisting only in knowledge of the principles of religion. But those who are justified by a lively faith, by a true faith, can never finally fall from it. Because those whom God justified, he glorified. Those who do not have a good conscience may fall from their faith, and by it show that they only know the principles of a good of Christian faith, but fail to actually have those principles permeate their lives. And so they're turned over to Satan in hopes that they would return to God. What's really fascinating about this concept is that by this, God is basically using Satan's work in the world to accomplish his own purposes. Satan labors to oppose God, but God is using that work then to try to turn people to himself. That's the point of turning them over to Satan here. That's an incredible picture just of God's wisdom and control. Discipline, though, at least in the realm of God, it never exists for discipline alone. Discipline always comes with a purpose. It's not repaying evil for evil. It exposes false teachers to the people that they're like. 
perhaps to show them who they are. Just as a mirror reflects the image of an individual, the idea is that the world would reflect the attitude of these false teachers. But notice there's hope here. I have handed them over to Satan that they may, not, may learn not to blaspheme. This is a teaching moment. That they may turn from their ways and turn to God. They're not turned over to Satan and then remain with him. But the goal is to see them see the beauty and perfection of God and return to him. And so we have to stop looking at the process of discipline as punitive and see it as corrective. What kind of parent would I be if I allowed my child to always play in the street and never corrected that behavior? Or to use something from last night as Bethany and I were watching TV and watched this couple struggle about having their children come to church. What kind of parent would I be if every Sunday, like they were doing, I just let the complaints of my children allow them to stay home? and never compelled them to attend. Discipline is hard. It's at this point that most people will abandon the fight for the faith. They contend poorly for the faith by not contending for it at all. It requires us to make difficult choices, to have difficult conversations. Sometimes that's what's necessary. As Philip Towner says, for some, it takes being cast off into the sea to realize the advantages on board ship. Ideas have consequences. We speak frequently with surprise at the decline of the church. We can't understand why people are walking away and people are less committed than they were years ago. But I don't think we should be surprised. Because the decline is a consequence of ideas. One survey suggested that 62% of professing believers attend church only once or twice a month. That same one said that only a third attend weekly. That's under normal circumstances. Because another study reveals that after COVID, nearly 16% of people who attended regularly have stopped altogether. At one time, I was working with a church, and I asked one of their pastors what their church attendance was. And he answered me in a unique way. He said, we have about 1,800 members. We have about 2,700 people who would call this their church home. But our weekly attendance is about 900. Practically speaking, that means that in order to announce something, they have to announce it on three consecutive Sundays because people are only attending once every three weeks. Again, that shouldn't surprise us, though. Little by little, the body of Christ has adopted these ideas, and these ideas have chipped away at the authority, integrity, and priority of the church to the point that the role of that church in the Christian life it's no longer seen as a value. Last year, I had asked you guys to read a book, and my hope was that perhaps it would prompt discussions between us in order to see that. Ideas have consequences. And our ideas, if they're not properly evaluated, can undermine the church. 
one of those ideas that we bought into is a cultural belief that confronting one another is the most unloving act of all. And so when it comes to living out the example we see here in 1 Timothy, we're not willing to do it. That is a cultural value that the church has integrated into its beliefs and practices, even though it conflicts with Scripture. Admittedly, I, I think that rejection comes from two things. First, we don't always act very loving when we confront. It's true that even when we act with the utmost character, some people are still going to reject that corrective action. But I'm sure that also many of us have examples where we've been confronted in a very unloving way. Second, I think our adoption of the idea that confronting sin and false teaching is unloving comes from what we fight for. Very few arguments are made over doctrine. I think many people will use biblical language and they'll try to point to scripture. But most people's arguments aren't about scripture. They're not about the, the primary issues. Their arguments are over their opinions of scripture, which leads to arguments about preferences. We have a faith <clears throat> worth fighting for. But we can contend for it well or we can contend for it poorly, as we've seen in our text. We contend for it well when we engage like the call of Timothy here by living out God's call in our lives and waging the good warfare with good doctrine and good conscience. Or we can contend for it poorly like Hymenaeus and Alexander, which is to elevate their opinions over scripture, their opinions of scripture over and above scripture itself. So we can be bold like the British or we can surrender too soon like Argentina. When things get hard, I think we surrender too early most of the time. I see it very frequently where people give up the fight when if they had just fought through just a little bit more, usually that opens up an explosion of spiritual growth. But they let the weighty things, the insignificant things, really become the weighty things. To contend for the faith well, I I think it comes from our willingness to do two things. We must be willing to confront others, truth in love, in a loving way. And we must be willing to be confronted by others. And you need both. If you're willing to be confronted but not willing to confront others, then you're half-hearted. If you're willing to confront but never willing to be confronted, then you have a prideful heart. Where does this fight begin? It's not in the church. It begins in the home. The good fight for the faith begins for a good fight in the home. And it begins with fathers. As leaders of the family, we set the standard our children, our spouses will follow us. They will look like us. That means that we have to model this by having the hard conversations with them. But we also have to allow them to have the hard conversations with us. 
We must contend for the faith and contend for it well. Let's pray. Our Father God, your way, your truth, your plan, every bit of it is perfect, Lord. And the more that we live that out, the more we recognize how perfect it is and and the more we come to trust you. But the reality is, Lord, that we oscillate. Sometimes we are half-hearted. Sometimes we, we focus on wanting to focus on you, but still keep our way in the world without offense, knowing that your truth is confrontational. Father, I pray that we'd be ones that would contend for the faith, but that we would examine ourselves and not contend for our ideas about the faith, but Lord, we would contend for you and your faith. And Father, I pray that we would consider it a great privilege to do so because we know that in reality you don't need us. You, of all all others, are quite capable of defending your own honor and glory, Lord. And so, Father, it is a great privilege to be able to serve you in this way. And I pray, Lord, that as we do so, it would be done in a way that honors and glorifies you, Lord. May we desire to see your truth prevail in order to see your Son prevail in the hearts of those around us. We commend all of these things to you in your holy and precious name. Amen.